This is Darrell Lalia, and you're listening to the Before the Man's Podcast, episode 156. Cowabunga! Are you ready to be the master architect of your life? Are you ready to design your business and invest in needs that create the lifestyle you've always dreamt of? Are you ready to learn from entrepreneurs and millionaires who have achieved a certain level of success? Hey, this is Derek, location-independent entrepreneur, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hi, I'm Gina Lofton. I am an investor, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey there, my name is Heather Havenwood, marketing coach and global entrepreneur and you are listening to the before the millions podcast hey this is mark asquith the host of the seven minute mentor podcast global entrepreneur and all-round geek and you are listening to the before the millions podcast i am mc lobster the cash flow ninja and you're listening to before the millions podcast you're listening to the before the millions podcast but whether you're looking to invest for cash flow or build an online business that allows you to be location independent you've come to to the right place. Mr. Hollywood himself presents the Before the Millions podcast. And now your host, DeRay Olalaye. What is going on, good people? Welcome back, back to another episode of the Before the Millions podcast. And we have another fantastic guest for you today. His name is Mr. Aaron Chapman. Um, but before that, if you haven't yet subscribed to this podcast, be sure to hit that subscribe button. And secondly, if you haven't yet left a review, be sure to head over to iTunes or your podcast directory and make sure you leave a review for this podcast. Five stars are preferred. So let's get into today's episode, because what we're talking about is the state of the market. You know, post COVID 19 things are kind of opening back up and outside is being available again in, in a small capacity. So we want to talk about the real estate market and we want to talk about mortgage rates and we want to talk about is now a good time. I mean, mortgage rates right now on average for a conventional loan are about five, five and a half percent. So is now a good time to lock in those rates? Are rates going to go back down? Are rates steadily going to rise up? All of that will be discussed on today's episode. So theoretically speaking, I went to go get this information directly from the horse's mouth. Now, today's guest, Mr. Aaron Chapman, is a veteran with over 20 years of experience in the finance industry. And as a loan originator, and a sea of loan originators. I think the industry has over 300,000 lenders. So just imagine his company ranks number 14 as a lender. So with that kind of expertise and with his posts on the financial markets, I wanted to do a deep dive with him on, again, the future of interest rates and mortgages and how real estate investors should think about financing after the coronavirus pandemic. So this is a fascinating episode, and we're going to get into it here shortly. But if you're not already following me on Instagram, be sure to head over to beforethemillions.com forward slash Instagram, or just head over to Instagram and type in my name, Dereo Lalia, and let's connect. Instagram is my platform of choice. Unlike Facebook, I can get a message and not see it for two, three weeks, maybe a month. Uh, LinkedIn, I can get a message and not see it for a few months. But I frequent Instagram a little bit more because that's where I post my current books, travels, eateries, things of that nature. And that's where I've been collecting a lot of the Q&A questions that 
I'm going to answer in an upcoming episode. So if you have any questions as it pertains to real estate, as it pertains to your journey, financial freedom, lifestyle design, being location independent, uh, again, hit me up on Instagram, follow me on Instagram. Let's connect and let me see if I can help you get you to your goal. So my Instagram handle is again, Darrell Lalia, or if it makes it easier for you, you could just head over to beforethemillions.com forward slash Instagram. So one last thing before we get into the show, because I want to help you find some money from the type of money that you can find in your couch to the type of money that can maybe cover a car note. I'm going to first show you how to do that in the tip of the week, and then we'll get to the show and figure out how Aaron was able to close over 3,000 transactions in the past four years. 3,000, that's like an average of what, like 800 transactions a year? That's insane. But we're going to talk about exactly how Aaron did exactly that. DeRay's Tip of the Week. You know that feeling when you were a kid and you find a dollar on the floor or in the playground or, you know, in the parking lot? I remember the last, the very last time this happened to me, and it hasn't happened since, was like when I was like 16 or 17 in high school. I was walking out of basketball practice and I was walking to my car, uh, crossing the street, and lo and behold, right there in the dirt uh, next to some trees, uh, was like a five or a ten dollar bill, or it might have even been a twenty dollar bill, because I remember how excited I got, and I was just like, "OMG!" And it happened quite frequently when I was younger, but since I've like turned eighteen, I haven't seen a single bill on the floor anywhere. Well, that's again free money, and I want to see if I can help you find some free money. I mean, how about when you find some change in the couch? That's always a joyous time. I personally don't find change in the couch, but I do find my own money in my pocket sometimes. So anyways, here's a way to search, quote unquote, the couch to see if you have some change that can possibly pay for your next meal or can possibly pay for your next bill. And the way I want you to do this, this was actually recommended to me by one of my mastermind members. So here's what you do. You type into your search bar on Google or whatever your search engine is, and you type in unclaimed property and then your state. So unclaimed property, Texas, or unclaimed property, New York, or unclaimed property, California. And you go to the unclaimed property site. And if you've heard of this before, you're like, yeah, yeah, I already know this. But some of you haven't. And basically, these sites are set up for the state to help individuals cash in on funds that they're entitled to. But for some reason or another, they didn't yet receive So maybe you moved and you changed your mailing address, but the company that was supposed to give you some money. So let's just say AT&T had a credit because you overpaid your bill and they sent it to your old address, little things like that. So those things add up over time. And if you go to one of these sites and you put in your name, you're going to see all of your unclaimed money forever. Now, I put in my name, and unfortunately, I didn't have any unclaimed money for me, but I put in some of my family members' names, and one of my uncles has $400 coming to him. One of my aunts had two records that came up, and she's getting like $240 back to her. I saw one account on there with fourteen grand of unclaimed money, and I'm just like, wow. Again, all you have to do is go to unclaimed property and your city name, put in your individual name in the search field and see if you have any unclaimed money. For instance, the state of Louisiana in itself, the Treasury's office is holding over eight hundred and seventy nine million dollars in unclaimed funds. 
So even if you don't have any unclaimed funds, I'm pretty sure that somebody who's arm's length away has unclaimed funds and uh, you'd be making their day if they see that they're about to get $40 into their bank account or a $40 check in the mail. So again, quick tip to find some couch money and maybe even help you through these uncertain times. I hope you enjoyed it. Let's get to the show. And now your feature presentation. I come from a background of uh, cattle ranching, you know, uh, I was in the oil fields in Wyoming right off the cattle ranch. Then from there to running heavy equipment. Then I got an opportunity to work in the mines in Northern New Mexico with my dad. And he'd been doing that all his life and, or at least a good chunk of his life, except for the time we were cattle ranching. And I, that opportunity was phenomenal to me to be able to be underground with my pop. I had heard about you know, his experiences and the people he worked with when I was a kid. And so it was a great job, great opportunity, my favorite job in the world, but they had to shut down the project. You know, they can only go so far and I got laid off. So I had to go look for work and every place I went, I got turned down because I was too, I was overqualified for every job that I was, I could find, um, every opening available. And I found myself one day, I had a wife and infant son. We were completely broke. I was, uh, applying for a $10 an hour truck driving job with a landscape materials company. I got turned down again, overqualified. I drove away from there, literally shedding tears. I was, I was a broken man. I was only 23 years old, but I was like, I had a great resume. I could not understand why I couldn't get a job. And as I drove away, I had a coupon for diapers for my son because we were out of diapers at the house. And as I am uh, driving up to the grocery store, actually leaving the, the facility, my uh, gas light comes on on my truck. So I drive over to the store where I need to go. And there's a gas station outside there, pulled up, swipe my debit card because I didn't have a credit card and I didn't have any cash and I got a decline. I rummaged through my vehicle to find some change, and I started walking that parking lot for two hours. When I was done finding enough change to get two gallons of gas so I could make it home, I went in to get the corresponding diapers with that coupon, and on my way out, I ran face-to-face with a guy I used to do, um, when I was digging swimming pools years before, he uh, used to run the office. And he asked me how things were. I told him what was going on. He had a gift certificate for Red Lobster. He took me and my wife to dinner the next night and introduced me to this industry. He gave me the business card for a guy who ran a broker shop, introduced me. I started as a telemarketer 23 years ago, and I've completely worked my guts out for 23 years to get to a point where I'm at today. Walk me through the transition here, and I think that's really fascinating. So you started as a telemarketer. How did you climb the ranks? Like, what were the position by position? Walk me through that those phases. Well, when I walked in there, you know, I had to cut a foot off my hair, I had to shave, I had to clean up. I come from a roughneck background. So you walk in there, my mom had bought me some clothes so I could so I could look like a business guy. And it was a very relaxed atmosphere. And as I was learning how to do the telemarketing, I developed some some leads. And I was able to convince my the branch manager to allow me to work some of the leads. So he said, Okay, if you want to work this, I'll put you with one of these other loan originators and he can teach you how to do loans. But you're gonna share split the commission on your first ten deals. And it was really kind of a hammer and chisel process trying to learn it and adapt to it. But I, I started recognizing different personalities within the brokerage. And there's a guy over there named Ed. And that guy could get away with saying anything to anybody. He'd get away with whatever he wanted to do and still be fairly successful. And back in those days, successful was closing three, four transactions a month. That was a successful person in the industry. If you're closing eight, nine, 10 a month. That was, that was huge. Well, mirroring myself, trying to figure out who I was going to become in this and having the balls to just be that person as I developed an understanding of the business, 
just getting out there and really communicating to everybody and finding my niche, uh, eventually stumbling into the real estate investor from a loan originator, just doing any loan I can get to the point of one of something. I'm no longer focusing on people buying houses to live in. I'm no longer focusing on working with realtors because I really couldn't stand it. I no longer focus on working with, with home buyers to buy their, uh, you know, their first home or their dream home because what they were purchasing was irrational most times. They wanted something they couldn't afford and they would push you to give them that because it's their right as an American. But the real estate investor made sense to me. So I started to develop my understanding of, of the real estate investor and real estate finance and why they were buying those homes, how to do the cash flow, how to find the right, right loan programs that help them. And in 2003, I just went full-time chasing real estate investors and I started ignoring all the other things. And then the crash happened, right? Um, the people that are sending my business, me business got out of the business. And I, uh, August 8th of 2008, I was on a Harley heading out of town and I got in a motorcycle wreck that put me in a wheelchair and, and completely changed my life, uh, the dynamic of everything at that point. Uh, so I came back to an industry that was obliterated. I had to learn how to walk again. I had to literally retrain my brain because my memory, my memory would only last three minutes. I had to retrain everything, but it was one of the best things I could do because now I had to learn all this stuff all over again. And it actually became the best thing that ever happened to me. And I really, really dug deep into the real estate investors when they're coming into Arizona to buying that real cheap real estate because of the crash. And at that point, I, I, I just had to really mold myself into becoming um, the trusted advisor to those investors from a financial perspective. There's an old saying that says, good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. I'm blessed to do between seven and 800 transactions a year. This year, we'll probably get about 1,000 to 1,200. And I get to see a lot of judgment-making skills at work. I get to see a lot of people deciding what they're going to do with their business. And I get to see where they fail and where they succeed. And because of that, I can advise the investors I work with based upon what I see other people do and where their success is, so that way they can, they can avoid the bad judgment needed to build their business. And when I realized that, and I started becoming very, very, very interested in the growth of the real estate investor's business, my business went through the roof. I went from a couple hundred transactions a year to, like I said now, over 700. In fact, we've, this month, we'll have closed over 400 by the end of this month so far this year. That's incredible, Aaron. That's simply amazing. You know, taking it back to when you didn't have the best memory. You were, you were losing, you, were, you, you couldn't remember things past three minutes. You know, one of my favorite exercises, one of my favorite memory exercises is the mind palace. I'm curious as to what types of exercises, what was your favorite at the time that really helped you sharpen, sharpen your memory? Mine was just carrying around a notepad. I had to write down everything that was going on. I had some very, very patient work, people working with me. Uh, my mom was still a realtor. She was a realtor then. She would send me a lot of business. There's another gal here at Caldwell Baker named Carolyn. She would send me a lot of business and they would call up and give me a client to call. And then five minutes later, call me back and say, did you write that down? And I'd say, write what down? And they say, grab your pad and write it down. And so what it really boiled down to is people who cared enough about me um, and my family and my future to help hold my hand through that. And I, I get kind of emotional even thinking about it because the, the other people took care of me to make this possible. Of course, I had to get off my ass and make it work too, you know, because they weren't going to drag me, right? They were going to prompt me and I started to do the work. But just writing it down and then rereading it, rereading it, reminding myself what I needed to do. It's like that movie Memento, right? I had to remind myself. Now, as I kept after that, eventually I didn't need the notepad anymore. 
if I got into a habit of carrying one and keeping notes on what I needed to do, and then eventually, you know, being able to, to build a business where I could hire other people to do these things. So now my, 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 my whole goal, one, is to make my investors successful, and two, have so much business that I have opportunity for others. So Samantha, who scheduled us, um, her whole job is to read my emails and schedule my calls and make sure my calendar is full. And because if I start touching it, I'll screw it up. So I, um, you know, it, it, the, the blessings have come from my inability to do certain things or my ability to hand off certain things to bless other people's lives. I love that. I love that. People often say, you know, you should, you should get better at your weaknesses. And oftentimes I find the successful people focus on their strengths and let their weaknesses be their weaknesses and have other people focus on their weaknesses on a daily basis. What time do you wake up and why? 4.30. And the reason I wake up at 4.30, sometimes it's earlier than that, depending upon what I need to do. There's been co- commonly lately 2 a.m., 2.30, somewhere in there. The reason I wake up at least at 4.30 is because I start a morning routine. I, I drop to my knees every morning uh, in prayer to offer gra- a, a prayer of gratitude to God for the people that are in my life, the clients that I have, every single one of them. I get, I have so many new things to be grateful for every single day. The opportunity to have to be on this, this show um, and the people I get to work with, my family, all these things, right? So I get to, I, I start with that. Then immediately go to, a, I uh, start my coffee up and I go right to my chair. I have a specific chair I sit in and I start reading. Right now I'm in Second Samuel reading about, you know, the life of David in the, in the Old Testament. I've been reading all these books that couple with the Old Testament to understand it better. A lot of people get into uh, the whole separation of religion, whatever. And in my opinion, it's not religion. It's the history of us. It's the history of where we came from and what happens to people who choose the wrong route and what happens to people who choose the correct route. And you get to decide for yourself. It's just a, it's just documented understanding of humans. Right. Then from there, I go into studying what I need to that day. I'm, I'm also an author. I've got four books out. I've got uh, three more written and with my uh, editor. Um, I've got uh, I'm, I'm hell bent on 13 books to go out by the by the end of uh, within five years. And they're not big books. I got four of them here. They're just, they're little, you know, they're only 30 pages or more. And the only reason I write 30 pages or more, because I think that if I try to go for 200 or hundred pages, the message gets lost with all the filler. I focus on the specifics of that particular item. And then the, um, and then I get out of it. Right. And then go on to the next subject. And so um, I spent some time doing that. Then I get a workout in and I start my day. Uh, I love it. I love it. Absolutely. Exceptional. You're currently ranked 14 in an industry with over 300,000 loan originators. And you, you mentioned that you were set to probably close about 1,000 to 1,200 loans this year. In 2018, you closed 700 units. In 2017, you closed 670 units. How in the world, Aaron, how in the world does this, does this kid grow up to this entrepreneur and this entrepreneur builds a marketing funnel that literally is able to close this amount of deals. How does that happen? You know, it's, um, it's kind of hard to wrap my head around when, when people ask me to define it. And what it boiled down to is, you know, I've had to restart my, my business a couple of times. And up until November 1st, 2015, I couldn't get past a hundred and some. And then November 1st, I had a partnership go bad. We, I actually merged with, an, with a competitor. We were doing awesome. And he decides we're done. And he yanks the plug and I had to start over at zero. But what I had was, you know, three staff members. We sat down said, what are we going to do with that next phone call that comes in? And we decided at that point, we had all this knowledge that we had had from what we developed up to that, up to that point, how to do our jobs. But what we didn't have was a really, really awesome system. 
because I was always combating with my partner and how he wanted it done versus how I wanted it done. And I stumbled into what, what really helped most was finally starting to start reading, right? I had a buddy of mine share with me the book, The Goal by Eli Goldratt. Have you ever heard of that? Um, but it talks about manufacturing. And what I did is I took lessons I learned from that and started applying it to the, the, the now business I was basically starting over with the next phone call. So me and my little staff sat down and talked about what are we going to do with this next client? And we started enacting a process of kind of like going to Chipotle to get a burrito built. You got a different person doing different stages, seeking efficiency in everything because the phone was going to ring. I still had a reputation and it did. It rang within 10 minutes and it kept ringing. And because of our focus on what we can do for that person on the other side of the phone, they were the most important. When I got that figured out. At this point, the, the partnership split up. You had already niched down to specifically focusing on real estate investors. Yes, we, I niched that out in 2003, right? But, um, and he was a competitor of mine in that niche. You know, there's only like five people in the United States that do what I do. You know, and we're all, none of us are really we're competitors, but we're not competitors, right? Because you're going to deal with a different loan originator based upon who you're dealing with. What you're seeing is what you get right here with me, right? I've always got the damn hat. You know, not, not very many people are walking around with a two and a half foot beard, right? There's, there's going to be differences. Not, not all of them are as vocal as I am. You know, they're not going to say the shit that's going to come out of their, my mouth that's going to come out of theirs, right? So with all that, um, I knew I had a certain following and I was really, really hell-bent on creating a cult following, which is what we've been successful at doing. But it all boiled down to what was the experience of that next person? And then I started talking to them and asking each one of those clients when the deal was done, what do you think we can incorporate in our process to make us better at what we do? I started doing that for a couple of years and I started getting a lot of feedback. And so I talked to my teams, like, how do we incorporate this? What do we got to do? What do we got to change? And we have slowly built from me and three team members. I've lost some team members and gained some more. I'm at 21 employees right now that's part of my team. And they only focus on the deals that come through me. I've got processors, processing assistants, underwriters, funders, closers. They're all on my team. Instead of me talking to different departments and having to convince a different manager to help me out and prioritize my stuff. They all work with me and it's freaking awesome. You know, so it, it really just boiled down to deciding what it was that those individuals that work with us need to have. And the more we focused on them, the more our business just grew. And um, it's not about, and we, and we actually really shook off us. We didn't care about us so much. In fact, I ask a lot of people who made the most money during the gold rush. It was the guys who sold the picks and shovels, not the people digging for gold. Sure, there's a lot of people who made a lot of money digging for gold, but the guys who provide them the tools. So what I explained to them is like, I'm selling picks and shovels. But the difference between me and those guys back there is I know where the gold is, how to extract it out of the ground. And I want to give you all the best information because not because I've done all of it, because all the people who have are coming through my shop all the time. And if I can help you to find where it's at, get it all out of the ground, you're going to need more than picks and shovels. You're going to need trucks. You're going to need... Uh, heavy equipment, you need a smelter, you need a mill, you're going to need a damn train to haul all that. And if I did my job, who are you coming to for all that? You're not just going to buy picks and shovels from me, you're going to buy all the equipment. So their success is my success. And if they fail, I start to fail. And the bottom line, I don't participate in failure. I will not set people up for something that's going to take from them. I've seen a lot of people out there willing to take from another person for their own success. And every time I've seen it, they end up falling anyway. So why not just help them? You end up helping yourselves and you never end up having to be in a situation where you're defending yourself. 
Wow. Oh, that's a, Aaron, that's a beautiful analogy. I, I totally resonated with that. What do you think was the cause of what you called a cult-like following? What do you think was the cause of that? Was that was it loyalty? Was it compassion? Um, I, I really, I'm guessing if I had to really guess at something, it has to do with the fact that I care enough, I care as much for those, or more for those people on the other end of the phone than they do for me. Um, you know, there's that old saying, and it's very cliche. You know, nobody cares. Uh, nobody cares what you know until they know what you that you care. Something to that effect. I can't remember exactly what it is. Members on a mug somewhere. You know, somebody's coffee mug. Uh, but it, it really is true. If you don't give a damn about them, they don't care what's going on in your head. Secondly, is I get to I'm I'm present in a lot of places. You know, we were talking before the show started about my travel. I speak a lot publicly um, when it comes to real estate investment. Um, gatherings and and seminars or whether it be events that they're having and when when before people had seen me very much i only got on the internet in the last year you know i really try to stay keep my keep my physical presence away from the public because i want people to decide who i am by my appearance well then what ended up happening is I go to these events and people were being told they've got this real estate investment finance expert coming in to talk about the markets, to talk about finance, to talk about inflation, to talk about how inflation nullifies compound interest. I've got a lot of information to give. And so when they know that person's coming and I never give a headshot, I used to never, let's put it this way. And people are like, why don't you give us a headshot? We need to give it. It's like, I don't want people to make an assumption what they're going to get out of the gate. So when people show up and they get that introduction, they get my background and they're sitting in that audience and then I come up on the stage looking like me, pair of jeans, pair of boots, got a you know black dicky shirt on and a steel chainsaw hat with a braided beard. Like, what in the hell is that and why is he here? That's what I'm going for. They have to ask the question before they hear the answer, right? So if the question comes up saying, what in the hell is that? They got to now listen to find out what the hell that is. So I think that the cult-like following really started to even develop even more when I had the opportunity to have these these uh, these chances to speak in front of people, and that was not easy to do. I had to develop enough knowledge to be credible, and when I and and once I started becoming credible enough to get in front of people, I've been standing on stages since 2012 probably um, because of that, and it's intermittent till now. It's quite quite a bit quite a bit more often, and because of that. Um, people were really intrigued to the fact that how is it, you know, all that, but you look like you. And it's such a dynamic shift to what was going on in their brain. They would gravitate towards those conversations with me more so than the guys who look like everybody else that blended in with their polos or their, or their, their sport coats and all that crap. Now, God bless you for wearing them. You're not going to catch me dead in it. In fact, they're not even allowed to bury me in that crap. Put me in my camos. (laughs) I want to be looking like I'm going on to the great hunting grounds of, you know, of the, of the next life. But you know, yeah, and I'm glad people wear that stuff so that way they can they can go be there and I can differentiate myself. I love it. I love it. I love it. And this is this has been a fascinating conversation already. And I want to get to some some learning, some teaching for our audience today. And you know, you and I share a, a, a favorite one of our favorite uh, movies, The Big Short. And The Big Short is you know the talk about the um, it, it highlights really the the real estate bubble back in 2007 2008. And it not only was entertaining, but it was also educational. There was lots of educational pieces in there, which I really enjoyed. Again, if you haven't yet checked out The Big Short, definitely go ahead and check that movie out while you're quarantining right now. Um, But I want to talk about some of the things that it taught in The Big Short and see if we can break down 
from a 30,000 foot view, some of the things that are going on in the lending industry. But first, again, we need some background on, on I guess, some of the terminology. So I first want to ask you, what is a mortgage-backed security and what drives interest rates? So that right there, the big short is one of the, one of the main tools I use to teach people what that is. So when you, when you watch the big short, there's going to be a character in there uh, from Solomon Brothers back in the 70s, Lou Ranieri. And you're going to see a scene where he's standing in a conference room with about four people. And one of the people sitting at the, at the end of that conference room that he's presenting to, he's got a, you know, one of those overhead projectors. So we know it's 70s, right? And he's talking about this thing, the mortgage-backed security. So what they're doing is they're taking, they're convincing a, a pension fund manager who is who he's presenting to, to take 20 plus million dollars from the pension. I think it ended up being 25 million total, if I remember correctly. I need to go back and look at my numbers. Um, but they were going to invest that money into this pool of funds. And then what they were going to do is take those pool of funds and make it available to the banking industry to take from to lend out. And that security, if the more money goes into that pool, it's a supply and demand thing, right? The rates go down. The less money in that pool, people sell out of it and go to stocks or precious metals or other commodities or currencies or wherever they invest their capital. As it shrinks, the rates go up. Supply goes down, cost goes up, right? So what he was figured out is, wait a minute, there's all these banks out there that take depositors' capital. And they will have a loan officer and the bank president, and they will lend money out to, to the local people, and they will charge like 12%, 14 18 20% at some points. And they will keep a portion of that and they'll pay their depositors like this, like their CD owners, like 8%. They'll pay the people with checking accounts like two or three. That was back when you're making a decent return, but also inflation was through the roof, right? So when you think about it, it really wasn't, they balanced themselves out. So what he decided was like, wait a minute, if we can get, you know, 18, 20%, we can take all this investment capital from pension funds and people's 401ks and IRAs, and we'll pile into one place. We'll lend it out. And as the money comes back, we'll keep a piece. The pension fund will keep a piece. Then the end user who put the money into the pension, they get a piece. So there was billions of dollars being made overnight in these big pools. Well, what happened was you get into a scene where Margot Robbie's sitting in her bubble bath and she's saying it got to a point where people, you know, there was a there was a time in this nation we were content with what we had. People weren't out there, you know, buy, living in a house for two years. And now, oh, now I got to go buy the next biggest thing. I got to be the king dingling on my street. Now the biggest, baddest house and the fastest freaking car, right? People were happy with what they had. I mean, there's a lot of folks I knew of that. They bought their houses in the 60s and they stayed in the same house until they died, right? That was part of the human, the American culture at one point. So what happened was, is they're running out of people to lend to. So they had to get a little bit more creative. Then you get to the late 90s. You start doing the, the zero down stuff. You start doing the no income qualifier stuff, the, uh, the no income, no asset, the real crazy kind of loans. And then you, you see them uh, putting our whole industry at risk. Our entire, actually, is the globe at risk because people were given money to borrow that couldn't afford to pay it back. And they're being told it was fine. You know, so there was a lot of, uh, we got into earlier talking about how people were taking advantage of other people. That was people taking advantage of another person and their ignorance of what they could afford and what they couldn't afford. Now we had the crash. Now we have a lot more of a responsible lending process going on. The licensing we have to go through, man, that's miserable. I had 20, I think 24 or 25 licenses. The renewals is 60 plus hours a, a year. It sucks, but it's necessary to ensure that the best people are still in the industry ensuring that people are not being taken advantage of. Now I can't say that that's happening. You know, there's always human, human nature at play, but 
Understanding the background of the mortgage-backed security and what drives interest rates is an absolute necessity. Too often, people think the Fed lowering the rate is going to change it. It doesn't. All the Fed lowering of the interest rate is is, is illustrating our current economy. If they're lowering the rates, it's because they're trying to spur some happenings within the economy, trying to get things moving, right? They've lowered it down to zero. That shows how badly they want things to move. And that's an overnight rate between banks. The other thing is people watch the 10-year treasuries think, well, the treasuries are moving. Well, it's a 10-year note right? It's a 10-year bond. And that is the treasury. It goes to the government. They get to use that for what they're doing. They're paying interest to whoever put the money in there. Well, one big indicator that is not tied to mortgages, most of our loans today are 30-year fixed. That's a 10-year. How is having money coming from a 10-year instrument even remotely related to a 30-year instrument? So you got to go to where it's being done. I tell a lot of people to go to a a, a site called... um, mortgagenewsdaily.com slash MBS, mortgage-backed security. And when you get there, there is, uh, in the center of the screen, there's going to be a graph. That is the mortgage-backed security itself trading. Now, if you're a real estate investor, you want to click on, in in the middle of the screen there, you're going to see uh, 30-year UMBS, as in universal mortgage-backed security. Then it's going to show a number, probably 3.5. That's the coupon. There's various different coupons. Starts at, I believe, 2.5, goes to 3, 3.5, 4, 4.5, 5, 5.5, and 6. Those are the different rate ranges we're really dealing with. For an investor, in the in parentheses right next to those numbers, you're going to see change coupon. Click on that, go to 4.0. That's going to mainly tell you about what's going on in the pool where we get our money for real estate investors. And as it trades up, in the green, they're going to see green bars and red bars. The green bars mean is, is well, each bar represents a day of trading. If it's a green one, it means it traded up, money went into it. If it's a red one, money traded down, it went out. As it goes up, the pools start to swell, the rates will go down. As it goes down, the pools start to, start to decline, the rates will go up. Now, that is actually cost per incremental cost per rate. If you see a swing, let's say, let's say today you're going to see on that UMBS 4.0 Somewhere in the range of about 106.5. 100 is par, 6 is, is referencing a yield. Now, we're not going to get into the real depth of that. There's a lot of explanation there. So let's just say it's 106.5 and you called me and I quoted you a certain interest rate, right? And then a week later, so okay, let's go ahead and lock our rate. It went from 106.50 to 106.00. That means you're going to pay about a half a percent because you got a, a 50 basis point or 0.5 point swing. Um, in the pricing or the market from the time that we first talked, you get you could get the exact same rate, but now the cost went up a half a percent. If it went the other way around, then the cost got better. So it's 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 a process to understand. It's taken me years to get it. Um, and it's, there's still little nuances we don't all get because there's been a major thing that's happened with the servicing side of the business that's blown things up. You know, right now people are going to see points where they never saw points before because nobody's paying the service these loans anymore. They're not buying the servicing. They're demanding the servicing and you pay them. So that's changed the dynamic. I don't know what we can get into in the depth here, but understand the mortgage-backed security. It's somebody's pension, somebody's retirement. This could be part of your, your 401ks and IRAs. If you've got a mutual fund, I, I'm pretty sure you've got money in there. Nice. So whatever they're charging and getting back is paying for somebody else's future. The one benefit to it, is we live in an inflationary environment, correct? What is today's rate of inflation? So the the Fed will say it's about one to one and a half, one and a half to two percent. They're basing it off of, and we got the new the new PCE coming out. I think today the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index is how they measure inflation, but they're only measuring certain things. 
If you go to a place called thechapwoodindex.com or shadowstats.com, they will show we're probably closer to 10% inflation, 7 to 10. If you're in Northern California, it's 13. If you're in New York, it's like 12. You know, so inflation is based upon the cost of living where, you, where you're at, right? Well, if the average American's buying more stuff than what the Fed measures, and those things are moving pretty regularly. I mean, look at the toilet paper index right now. You know, if you're going to find it, you're going to pay 10 times more than it used to be. So the inflation is through the roof on paper, uh, at least that particular kind of paper. So considering these things that certain products go up more and more every year, it means the dollar's losing its buying power every year. So if you borrowed, say, 80000 today to buy a $100,000 property, financed 80% of it, many times people are thinking, man, I'm paying, paying interest on that for 30 years. I'm getting my butt kicked by compound interest, which is the eighth wonder of the world, according to Einstein. Yeah. One of the things Einstein didn't talk about was having that involved with a 30-year fixed instrument, an asset, which is the home, that's one, paying you a cash flow, and two, you get to pay back over a 30-year period with a declining instrument like the dollar. So if the dollar lost only value of, say, 7% per year because you're keeping yourself wired tight, not spending money indiscriminately, you're being conscious about where you spend it. When you recalculate every time your that dollar, the, the money leaves your hand to make a payment for 30 years, 360 payments, you're no longer paying them 30 or 80,000. You're not paying the $71,000 in interest. If you calculate the true value of the dollar as it equated to the value of the $80,000 the day you borrowed it, you're paying back 62,000 and change based upon a 7% inflation rate. Mm-hmm. So I tell everybody leverage high, leverage long, pay off slow. The greatest asset to your business is a 30-year fixed conventional loan because mm-hmm. of how long it takes you to give back the money. I love that. I love that. Wow, Aaron, you hit us with a whole lot. I know a lot of our listeners are pressing rewind by 30 seconds over and over and over again because there was a lot to digest in there, but it was all good info. And I think that, you know, to kind of put a bow on that in terms of what the listeners are now looking at on a surface level um, and a lot of investors are trying to figure out over the next few quarters is what should they be thinking about finance? We're looking at mid fives right now. What should we wait? Should we buy? I mean, what, what is your outlook? What do you think investors should be doing right now during this, during this period? During this period, several things. Number one, Start getting your morning right. We talked earlier about how I start my day. If you're not starting your day like that, if you're not doing something with yourself, you better start figuring it out. If you had a commute before that you don't have anymore, so now you sleep in, I would change that habit right away. We are forming habits right now. The habits of humans have changed completely. You know, they say it takes 18 to anywhere from 18 to 200 days to form a new habit, but 66 of 66 days of consistency to have it integrated where it's, a, where it's just an automatic happening in your life. We are creatures of habit. We, were, we are going to be slaves to those habits. So form good habits and become their slave. Start, start it with a morning routine. Get your mind right. The others get a baseline of what deal has to work. It doesn't matter what the interest rates are. It truly doesn't. The deal either works or it doesn't. I was doing loans back for people when the interest rates were 9% and the deal worked. I was doing loans for people when the interest rates were at their all-time lowest of 4% for a 20% down and the deal still worked. It is, again, it either works or it doesn't. The benefit of inter- of the real estate investment world, if the rates are going up, we get to write things off on our taxes to offset it. I have a whole other story where a guy bought two houses. I'll just tell the damn story. He got he went into contract on two brand new build homes in Memphis, Tennessee. Same floor plan, same price, same potential rents, same street. The only difference was 
One had the door facing on one side of the, uh, of the uh, garage. The other had the other. And then the other was one was just about done being built. The other had yet to break ground. So he was in contract on a bare lot. When he finished on property number one, it was December of 2017. He had a 4.75% interest rate, was very, very happy. His cash flow was, was working well. He closed. Now, we have Jerome Powell as the new chairman of the Fed. He started quantitative tightening. You know, quantitative easing was the Fed dumping tons of money into mortgage-backed securities, keeping the rate down. Quantitative tightening was the Fed stopping putting money in there, right? When they did that, by May the next year, the interest rates went from 4.75 to 5.75, a full percentage rate different. When um, I quoted him on his new rate, he said, I think I'm going to cancel the second deal. I'm like, why are you canceling? He goes, I'm losing $600 a year. And that was his words. Like, how are you losing $600? It's like the difference in payment is $49.97 per month. Averaging out to 50 bucks a month, that's $600 a year. Like, okay, how is it you're losing it though? Because I'm putting out the same amount of money out of my pocket as I did on property number one, but property number two is paying me that 600 less, so it's not worth it to me. I'm like, well, you just finished your taxes, right? He goes, yes. So contact your CPA and ask him a couple questions for me. I said, okay, what's that? I said, so before you make the decision, ask him what is the difference you will pay in the additional income on property one versus property two. Then, which is $600 a year, right? Then ask him what is the difference that in the tax deduction you get on property two versus property one because it has higher interest being charged and then get back to me. And then remember, you're not even paying the interest, your tenant is, right? Mm -hmm. Tenant's paying the interest, you're getting the cash flow and you get the write-offs. He comes back to me and says, let's go ahead and close. I said, why are we closing? Because when you run the difference in those two scenarios based upon my taxable income this last year, because no, the difference is no longer $49.97, it's $3.55 per month. Let's close the deals. Man. So the, the, the lesson here is it doesn't damn matter what the interest rates are. We have, we live, we are the most tax favored asset class on the planet. You get to make money because somebody's paying off the loan, right? You're automatically growing your 20% to hundred percent because somebody else is paying down the 80%. That's that right there. If you run the math on that, that's a 13.33% gain every year on the 20%. That right there kicks everything else's ass before any other cash flow, right? You get the possibility for cash flow. We get one, we get to write the tax deductions. Then we get the the um, inflation, like we just talked about, just pounding compound interest to death in your, be in your behalf. We get that growth. So you're never even paying back the principal. You know, when you consider all the things, potential growth in the, in the value of the home, we know that that's, that's happening. All those things, the return is hundreds of percent return. Too often people get caught up in cash on cash return. What's my cash flow? Those are all necessary. To quote the big short, that's the cherry on top of the sundae. That's not the ice cream. That's not the whipped cream. That's not the nuts. And that's not, that's not the sprinkles. That's just the cherry. The cash flow is the cherry. Everything else I just talked about is the hundreds of percents that is the Sunday. That's where you focus your time at. That's where you focus your energy. That's where you focus your, your, your investment thought process and pray that the cherry is just a big, 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 sweet one when it's all done. I love it. You mentioned before the call that you, uh, you had a few trips canceled in which you were going to go speak with some congressmen, some senators. Uh, just around the ideas of the lending industry and some decisions that need to be made moving forward. Would you care to share some light on that? Yeah, so I was there last year. I was invited as a delegation to go in and speak um, uh, to several. And uh, in the conversation, the one I wanted to really bring up is there's a big worry about housing, right? Lower income housing. They, they want to allocate more budget from the tax dollars to be able to put towards lower income housing. And I was trying to explain to him, you guys don't realize there's billions of dollars floating around in the wings in the forms of, of private capital 
in the real estate investor. So when they come into a neighborhood and they see the possibility of picking up one property, tearing it apart, rehabbing it, making it a very, very nice home for their renter, putting somebody in there, right? Going through the process of evaluation, making sure they're getting a good solid tenant in there. Then they do the house next door and the one on the other side and they slowly work their way through a neighborhood, you know, bringing up the value of the neighborhood, right? You're providing housing for people that are, that are not able to afford to purchase at this time. You're also uh, improving the quality of people within the neighborhood, right? You're getting the crime out because they're not the ones paying rent. So you're slowly improving these neighborhoods. And then if we work out some sort of path where the person occupying that structure can purchase that home from them in the form of a refinance because we've created some sort of instrument that gives that person the ability to kind of like a, like a uh, lease option used or could, but have it more legal teeth with Fannie and Freddie and all the government uh, um, uh, entities across the country and, and states and municipalities. That could change the landscape of it completely if they would just think about it a little bit deeper and stop looking at the real estate investor as a villain who's trying to take advantage of people. That's not what we're trying to do. If you really understood the real estate investor and what they provide to the community, it would back us better. So I was trying to bring a lot more light to that. So I went there with a lot of people who do a lot of private capital. I was the only um, conventional lender in the room. And I was very, very blessed to get a lot of the time. When I was in those rooms talking with these guys, I won you get a you get a big redneck with a braided beard and a black suit in there. They're going to look a little bit cross-eyed at you at first. Then you get to talk and offering the information. I got a lot of great feedback from them. But then we have all this other stuff. I was supposed to be back out there this year. The coronavirus thing happened. It completely impeded our ability to go back. But I'm not done. I'm going to go in there and keep kicking and screaming and, and, and yelling in behalf of the real estate investor because there's a segment of our population that's not being seen for what they really are. And I find it's my responsibility to do the best I can with that. And we all need to. All of us need to be able to put that out there. Unfortunately, those of us who are trying to build our businesses, we're head down working. We're focused on trying to be good, solid, contributing members of our social structure. And there's others out there who are not that have the loudest mouths because they got time to be loud mouths. We got to open our mouths up more. So if you get what you want with Congress, what what is what is that solution on the on the other end look like for you? So that would be some form of instrument that they could do that would, like we're kind of referencing, they're tying into a current loan. So if an investor has a loan and they got a 30-year fixed mortgage with, you know, Fannie, Freddie, that I, like I'm doing here, and then you have a tenant in there that qualifies in a certain way that we can create an instrument. I've got, an, I've got kind of a pilot instrument we can put to work in a couple of different markets and see if it works. That would attach to that deed of trust or that, that, that um, attached to that note, if you will, but does not impede title. They don't have ownership yet. They have rights to it. And then because of that, have the ability to just refinance the home into their name. Then the investor doesn't have to go through the sale process and all that. That would be, I think would be awesome if we could pull it off. Now, there's a lot of legal work we've got to get through to that. I know a lot of closing attorneys in multiple states I've talked to that we could come up with a way to do it if we got that government thumbs up to be able to move forward. The problem is, you know, not all of them look at it the right way. And, and, And the other thing is they don't even understand us. They don't even really know we're out there. When I was in there talk, uh, commenting on it, they're like, well, we know nothing about this because they, they, they're, they are big, big, big fish to fry. And I don't envy their job whatsoever. But if we can get a lot of the, the, the attention where it needs to be, I think a, what they're worried about with lower income housing, I don't think it'll all be solved. But we at least have, you know, we can, we can take a dent. We put a dent in that sucker if we get enough backing. 
when real estate investors are looking out three months down the line, and again, you know, we're being offered deferments, modifications, all these different types of things. What have you been doing in your business to overcome this crisis as smoothly as possible? Have you been having conversations with tenants? Have been have you uh, have you suggested that the people that follow you go and talk to their lender and, and see what their options are? Like, what? How are you uh, kind of navigating in the waters right now? So number one is in taking a very, very vested interest in each person I work with on and helping them to, to understand how they should run their business, because this is truly a business, right? The people that I've seen that have had the problems, well, one, there's not a lot of people not paying the rent. People are paying the rent. In fact, I've heard some property managers saying their collections are up from what they were before the crisis. So it's very interesting. The other is if you run your business accurately and you run it right and you're setting aside your reserves, you're not trying to take from your, your, your reserves to have your business Tesla or your business retreat where you go into Hawaii, you know, three times a year to get your mind right and all that kind of crap and taking from your business. In fact, guys, if you're, if you're listening to this, that's called embezzlement is what that is. If you're taking from your business and not setting it up properly. You're embezzling it for personal purposes. Quit that crap. But, if you're setting up right, giving you right reserves, you'll weather these things. You'll weather these fine. If you have your your, your basic principles in, in order, you will weather it just fine. But if you really need it, you lose your job. Tenants are paying. that. You have the forbearance to fall back on, but you don't do it just to do it. I've had too many people call me up and say, well, is that a great... Is that a great method that I should use to be able to develop reserves, go into forbearance for four months, set the money aside, and then have them put it on the tail end? They're not going to put it on the tail end. It doesn't work that way. You're going to go four months without payment. And on number five, you're going to pay all those payments. In five months, that's going to suck. And sitting in your bank account is not going to make you enough money to do that. It's actually going to hurt you and harm you. You're going to get out of your pattern, stay in your pattern. And they're not going to put it on the tail end because that's called a modification. You get a modification. Now, guess what? You don't get to get loans for a little while. Because you told the world, I cannot financially handle my shit. So why are they going to put you in a position to get more debt? If you can't handle it, handle it. Set it up front properly. The other thing I'm telling everybody with your routine, when you start getting up in the morning, get this. It's called the Master Key System by Charles Hanel. If you've never seen it, you've never read it, get it. This will teach you how to think. This will teach you how to get your brain wired right. Look at this thing. I've got flags all over it. I've marked the crap out of this thing. If you can see all the marks on that, all the underlines, this thing is amazing. It's not just a book you read. It's a system. It was a, um, it was a correspondence course in 1910. He would send people a letter, two, three pages. You'd read that letter every day over and over and over again for a week and do the mental exercise. And then when you're done with that, you go to the next stage of training your brain on how to, how to do what you want done. Quit letting stuff in there telling you what you can't do. This will teach you how to do what you can do. You know, I don't know if you know if you've ever handled a chainsaw before, but I believe it is the most powerful, most elegant, and coolest tool ever created. You know, you can cut down trees, you can make a cabin with you, you can carve a swan if you're talented enough, but it's also the most dangerous. You must use it for a second, it'll kill you. So why the patch sits on my head? Because it sits on top of the most elegant, the most beautiful, and the most creative tool ever created in, in, in the world, which is the human mind. That's why we need this to be able to take care of it properly. But it's also the most dangerous. If you use it incorrectly, it will destroy you and everything around you. So I'm reminded every time I put the hat on, that's why I've got like five of them. Every time I put that hat on, I better get my mind right. I better be ready to be doing the right thing. When you feel overwhelmed or unfocused, or you lost focus temporarily, or you feel as though you're starting to, to waver from your beliefs, uh, what do you do? And if it helps, what questions do you ask yourself? So one, I've had to rewire all that so it doesn't, doesn't do that to me anymore. 
I spend so much time focused on where I'm heading that I don't even allow that the doubt never even creeps in, but it doesn't mean it wasn't there before. Um, there was times, man, I remember in my career where I was literally losing it. You know, I was about ready to physically implode. I had to change my environment. I just had to get wherever I was at. I had to get up and move. I had to go somewhere else. I had, you know, my wife even says, she tells me, just take your shoes off, go stand in the grass, get a different sensation, change the sensation. You know, and um, if you let your mind start to wander off into stuff and start creating um, all the worst case scenarios, it's amazing how you end up there. Point your head, right? Get your head right. Get your get to where you believe it and you think it. Then you believe it by getting your heart to follow it. Then your ass just goes there if you start moving yourself there. Always move towards the goal. It's going to be hard, guys. It's going to suck. It's going to be really tough to climb up, just like going up Everest. Interestingly enough, people train for years and years and years to be ready to climb Everest. They finally climb it. And how long do they get to sit on the top of their goal? Not, not a long time. 15 minutes. Edmund Hillary himself, he stood there for 15 minutes. Why? Because that bitch will kill you. You don't sit there for very long. You get your ass down, you go for another goal. My, what I did, instead of creating an Everest of setting my goal at X amount or whatever, I set my goal so damn high I'll never reach the top. You know, my, what I'm striving for is what I call lendingtopia. A, a, an environment in, in lending that is perfect as far as the environment that to, for us to do what we do as our job. And I know that I'm getting close to having the perfect environment with all my staff and how we do things. But I also know for a fact, I will never find myself inside the walls of Lendingtopia. One of these days, I'm going to be dead outside the gate because when I go to the grave, I'm coming in hot. I'm never stopping. And I think everybody needs to have that same mindset. Set your goals so far away that you will never, ever, ever get there but you're going to be on such a cool path that you're accomplishing so many things that you're going to at least recognize how close you're getting. Um, and it kind of sucks a little bit to say you're never going to reach your goals, but I never want to because I never want to be able to sit in my chair and say, oh, I've made it because then guess what? I'm dead at that point. Mm -hmm. So um, the, the, the main, I guess the answer to the question, I know I go around the, around the, the, the hill a little bit with that. The main answer to the question has a lot to do with just changing your environment. Don't let yourself, your mind get sucked into things. There's a, there's a guy out there by the name of Dr. Joe Dispenza. Have you ever heard of him? I have. I have. You've ever seen this Ted talk in Tacoma, Washington, where he shows real time, the brain, as you think, as it's connecting neurons and firing on other, other, other neurons. And it's an amazing thing there where negative thoughts create a whole new connection. Positive thoughts create a whole new connection. You can actually rewire old connections if you concentrate on them. you got to watch that. He explains it in such, such an eloquent way to understand. And once you understand how your brain works and you understand what you're doing when you're actually thinking a thought and how it's rewiring things, it changes your mental thought. I guess how you go about thinking your thoughts. You realize, wait a minute, if I connect that neuron, now I'm going to be thinking that way and I don't want to think that way. So then you physiologically know what's going on instantaneously in your head. So you change your thoughts. Yeah. And that's basically what you have to do. If you don't like what's being going on inside there, just change it. I know it sounds simple and I'm saying it's simple, but it's going to be hard at first. You have to create the new wiring. Watch that. Dr. Joe Dispenza, TEDx Tacoma. Just search for that YouTube and watch it. It's amazing what he's telling you. And watch it three or four times. Get it. Get what he's talking about. Get how to control your brain. Get the master key system. Learn how to how to continue to control it. I love it. I'll put that, uh, I'll put that TEDx uh, link in the show notes as well. And since just because we've been throwing out so many amazing books on this episode, I also want to throw out his book as well that I've read that's amazing, which is The Placebo Effect. Lifestyle Design Acceleration Hacks. What? 
is your favorite Before the Millions book? That has to be the master key system. It's the absolute greatest asset in my life. The second best after that was Napoleon Hill's um, Outwitting the Devil. Well, I haven't read the master key system, but I love Outwitting the Devil for sure. What is your favorite lifestyle design app? This can be a business app or tool. You know, um, I don't really use much apps. I'm I'm one of those. The, the best I the best app I got is my texting thing because <laughs> then I can <laughs> I can text people and say I need this handled right. Um, and the the ability to communicate with my clients post closing right. I'm actually way behind right now. I'm like a month behind on it. But anymore is just be able to take my text thing, hold the little microphone down, and and, and have a personal message go out to each person I do business with. That's my favorite because they get to hear from me. And they get to, I get to exercise gratitude and share with them how much I appreciate the trust because without that, I don't have anything. I love it. What do you enjoy most about the way your lifestyle is currently designed? The opportunities that I have been blessed to create for other people. I've got 21 phenomenal employees. They're amazing people, and they are all um, pulling their hair out because they can't keep up with it. Um, I made a promise several years ago when I brought somebody from the from the uh, service industry. She was a bartender and she was amazing. She's part of one of my main team leaders now. And she made me a promise years ago that uh, she never has to go back. And I'm, I'm blessed to be able to fulfill that. And so um, that's that's one of the things that I really, really, really enjoy is being able to give other people opportunity. And, and also the opportunity that real estate investors get in the confidence that they have and can keep building their portfolio because they know they have a battle hardened partner that's not going to stop until they're successful. That's awesome. What were the sacrifices that you knew you had to make before the millions to get to where you are today? Um, one of the big sacrifices is lack of income. You know, when you, when you look at going from a job where you're paid hourly or salary to hundred percent commission back in 1997, and then having to sometimes you you work 60, 70 hour weeks and not make a single dime for two, three months. That's happened. I remember going in on Christmas Day of 1998, Christmas Day to meet with a husband, uh, with a guy and his son. They were living together on a refinance on their house. And that was the only deal I was going to close in January. Got the closing docs to the closing table. You know, they went with another lender for an eighth of a percent lower interest rate and never communicated to me. You know, so there's that, you know, there's the nights that I was just stressing to try and feed my family. And it went from, you know, many times where we were dead broken looking to having the guts to stay in it because I knew there was something better down the road. And if I gave up and my, I had family members there to me, go back to running heavy equipment, go back to digging swimming pools, go back to go back to driving truck, you know, because I, I was struggling that bad, but I stuck with it. And really, uh, you learn a lot about yourself when you have, when you develop tenacity. Yeah, that is that is absolutely beautiful. Who was essential to your growth before the millions and why? Well, it's it's a lot of people, but essential was really having a person here in my life, my spouse, who believed in me. You know, even though there was times that it was it was so damn rough, we had nothing. She knew that what I needed was the backing of somebody, not somebody nagging at me saying, get out there and get a job. She knew what the possibilities were and she backed me up. She stayed with me and believe me, sticking with me is not an easy damn thing. You know, and then the other influences are the, the who believed me at my current, I presented to them something that has never, ever, ever been created in this, in the history of this industry. And some of them tried to take advantage of it. They're gone. There's others that backed me up and realized it. And they, they came in behind me full force. And we went from a few hundred a year to now pushing on a thousand. I'm going to close a hundred and, 15 to 130 transactions this month 
That's what the numbers are saying within the next two days. It's unheard of. It's amazing. I, I honestly, I can't even begin to tell you what it feels like. Cause I don't know. It feels like a Tuesday right. anymore. Cause I just, I'm not wrapped up in that. It's kind of like the day I found my, my, my books were on Amazon. I didn't realize, I mean, after I thought about it for a minute, that was a, actually a Tuesday. The best things in the world always happen to me on Tuesdays. In fact, that's a whole other discussion I can get into. I love it. I love it. I love it. That's beautiful. I love Tuesdays. <laughs> Last but not least, why do you think so many of us are stuck before the millions, even though we have every intention of getting to the millions? I really believe that people are, st- are sticking themselves. There's a difficulty of belief in themselves of what they can accomplish because they can't see it being done. Um, that's where I think it's really important to sit down in a quiet place and write what's possible. If you don't write it down, it's not going to happen. You know, it's where book number one in my, in my series, the, the QJO initiative, as far as quit jerking off initiative comes in, I tell a lot of people read that it's little things that you can write down and accomplish. If you have not put it down on paper, there's a chance it won't happen. So there's too damn much doubt in their own personal capability. They have, can have all the, all the uh, faith in the world in somebody else, but it's amazing how little faith we have in ourselves. You're no different than Bill Gates. You're no different than, than uh, Jeff Bezos. The difference is they just did it longer and they endured things longer. They fought harder for what they've got. It's not an easy life. Life is too, it's, it's, it's hard being broke and it's hard being rich. Both of them suck as far as the energy you got to put into. Just got to decide which hard you want to deal with. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Aaron, this has been a, Fascinating podcast episode. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Aaron Chapman. If the listeners want to learn a little bit more about you, uh, find out some info on, on the company or even get in contact with you, where can they find some of your information? Let's go to AaronBChapman.com. Two A's, one R, B as in boy. Now, you can know AaronChapman.com works, work, works as well, but sometimes it's acting up. So I guess give out AaronBChapman.com. It's the tried and true one. You'll see a redneck sitting on a porch. What's really awesome about that porch it's uh, my office in Missouri. We need brick and mortar in that state, and we're having problems. I flew out there. I wrote down something. That's the story in the book. I wrote it down, and damn it, if I didn't end up right there, what I wrote down two months and two days later. So that's my office in Missouri, cabin built in the 1800s. You go to my website. There is a spot that says, where's Aaron? There's only three stories there. I should be writing hundreds, but I, I'm trying to find the time. Scroll down to the second one called Renewed from Obscurity. You could see the renewal of the other cabin there. It used to be a a church in the 1800s. Amazing things out there. I wrote it down. I ended up with it. And part of the other, the thing I was writing had to do with my production. I wanted to go 600 plus units. Now I'm way beyond it. Um, It's amazing what happens if you sit down and write it. But yeah, go to AaronBChapman.com. You can reach out to us through that. Um, Schedule an appointment. You can look at the media information in there. I'm trying to put as much data I can up there to help people. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love your service to the people, Aaron. This has been an amazing podcast episode, and we will talk to you very, very soon. Thank you. I appreciate the trust, man.